Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Sadly, there is now a large pantheon of modern-day financial rogues. Names like Kenneth Lay, Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, Bernie Ebers, and Barry Minko loom large. They've become synonymous with the excesses and deceptions of their eras. Now a new name joins the infamous roster, Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF. His story is not just one of personal downfall, but a symbol of a zeitgeist that believed, perhaps naively, that cryptocurrency was the future, that a digital revolution would redefine our very understanding of money. But beneath the veneer of fintech innovation and the promise of decentralized financial utopia, were there any substantive truths, or was it all a mirage? Was the crypto craze any more real than the illusory medical breakthroughs promised by Elizabeth Holmes? Joining me to unravel this complex web is Bloomberg investigative reporter Zeke Fox. His work doesn't just chronicle the rise and fall of SPF and the surreal world of cryptocurrency. It's a journey down the rabbit hole of modern financial mania that has left many questioning the very nature of value and wealth. As the crypto bubble burst and the world watched the spectacular implosion of SPF's empire, my guest Zeke Fox was there capturing the absurdity and the pathos of a $3 trillion delusion. His book, Number Go Up, is not just the tale of financial folly. It's a chronicle of our times, a story of greed, hubris, and the search for meaning in a world where the value of everything seems to be determined by the flickering numbers on a screen. It is my pleasure to welcome Zeke Fox here to talk about Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall, Zeke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, it is a delight to have you here. Is the conviction of SBF the end of crypto as well? So I think that this is a significant moment for crypto. The crypto promoters like to paint SBF as just one bad apple. But to make this case, you have to ignore all the other crypto scams over the last couple of years. I mean, just to cite one high-profile example, um, another person who I profile in my book is Alex Mashinsky, who ran this big company called Celsius Network. Their peak, they had $20 billion. So actually even more than uh, FTX, Sam Bankman frieds company ever did. And he had this pitch that he could pay up to 16% interest if you just sent him your crypto and people traded treated it sort of like a like a bank like a safe place to keep their savings and it turned out to be a big fraud and his trials coming up in a in a few months too um plus literally like almost every coin has crashed so um i went into crypto thinking that i'm a investigative reporter i've always written about sketchy parts of the world of finance. And I went into crypto thinking, look, this all looks pretty dumb. And what I found was that it was even dumber than I had ever thought. Like setting aside the fact that a bunch of the founders were just stealing everybody's money, it was all a bunch of hype. And each coin that I would look into, each crypto app I'd look into, I'd see that it didn't live up to the promises of its founders. And it was frankly surreal like listening to your intro it's kind of hard to imagine that 
this all really happened. You know, I'm I'm back in at my home in Brooklyn now, living like my my normal life. And it's just funny to imagine that, yeah, for a time there are a bunch of kids in in the Bahamas trading, you know, Dogecoin, a, a a currency that's based on a joke about a picture of a dog. And that for a time these were like the richest people, some of the richest people in the world. And real legitimate people in the world of finance were saying, oh yeah, like these guys, this might be the future of Wall Street right here. Um yeah, it, it was um it was it's surreal to imagine. And I and I can't imagine that it'll come roaring back. I think that the next crypto guy who comes along pitching some hot new thing, the average person is going to say, hey, I kind of remember, wasn't there another guy who did like a crypto thing? Didn't he steal all the money? Um, and I think they're going to be a little more reluctant to to jump in. One of the things that's so remarkable, and you just touched on it, is all the legitimate people on Wall Street that believed in this. Never mind the Sam Bankman-Frieds and the young people that were were pushing crypto, the legitimate people that thought this was the real thing. Yeah, and I think I've learned something about the investment world by investigating this. And when I started hearing about crypto, I started feeling a lot of FOMO, the fear of missing out. I'd hear about my friends who bought into crypto and they made a lot of money. And I was kind of skeptical. I'm also sure thinking there was much there, but it's hard to argue with results. And I was, um, I knew people who'd bought houses, renovated their kitchen, who'd gone on vacation, um, all funded with their crypto winnings. And I was kind of tempted to buy some myself. Actually not allowed to because of my job, but you know, I could see the appeal. And I think that for these big Wall Street firms, it's honestly not so different. They might not actually believe in crypto, but they see other people making a lot of money. And maybe their clients are even calling them and saying, hey, you know, Bill's funds up 20%. He got into some crypto stuff and got a big score. How come you're only up 10%? And they feel a lot of pressure. They're like, all right, it may be silly, but could it keep going up for a couple of years? Maybe I should jump in. And I think that a surprising amount of this whole boom was just driven by that mentality, both on the part of individual investors, but also some of the biggest names in finance. One of the things that, that's particularly remarkable is all the people that bought in to Sam Bankman's Freed's Fried, lies in this whole process. Having seen the trial, having watched the way he testified on his own behalf, it's hard to believe this was the same guy that got people to give him tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Yes. And I think that two things. He honestly, he was able to turn on his weird sort of charm when it when in the past, when it when it counted. And we heard at the trial some of his closest friends, his Girl, ex-girlfriend testify that essentially he was a real jerk and that he was um, he could be mean, vindictive. He wouldn't listen. He was a bully. Um, but in when he used to go speak before Congress or talk to a reporter like me, I mean, he, sure, he came off as odd, but he seemed um, authentic. He seemed kind of skeptical about crypto and he seemed... Honestly, him acting so weird made it seem like 
he wasn't hiding something. I mean, obviously that was not the case. Um, but I, I think it also points to something, which is that, I mean, I was sitting there in the Bahamas for a couple of days with him when things were going great. And no matter how hard you try not to be swayed by this, you do feel like, wow, it's kind of exciting that I'm sitting next to one of the richest people in the world. And just this aura of success turns all of his obnoxious quirks into marks of genius, you know? So like what we, we should have been saying, hey, this guy barely sleeps. He just like passes out on a beanbag next to his chair. He, you know, can't be bothered to dress up for anyone. He's always playing video games. Like, doesn't that seem kind of irresponsible? Couldn't he maybe make some mistakes or take some big risks because he's not paying enough attention? Um, you know, setting aside the fraud like this, we should have been a bit skeptical of this. And, I'm, you know, some people were, but other people, such as the venture capital firm Sequoia, this really happened. Sam, they found out that Sam had pitched them. And while he was like giving them a PowerPoint or something about what, why they should invest in FTX, he was playing League of Legends. And instead of being like, you know, this guy seems disrespectful. You know, if he can't even be bothered to pitch us properly, how does he behave, you know, when he's meeting with his auditors? No, they were like, wow, this guy is he he doesn't he doesn't need our money. He doesn't care. He all he he's so crazy. Let's give him another five billion dollars. You know, they they loved it. So like when things were going well, whatever he did, it just seemed like, you know, a sign that he was the golden boy of crypto. I think it says something just about the way we regard people who are rich and successful. Did it also say something about the the alleged complexity of crypto? That because nobody really understood it, that people at Sequoia didn't really understand it, that, that Ken Griffin, who did an onstage event with SBF, that, that because these people didn't really understand it, they just thought if they embraced him, that was enough. Yeah. And I, and like I was sort of saying before, I feel like like if you invest in FTX when it's worth $10 billion, what you're betting might really just be that someone else will come along and invest in FTX and say it's worth $20 billion. Like you might not really be betting on the long-term success of FTX. Um, you're just sort of thinking about what's like the next guy going to do. And, it, and that's definitely how a lot of crypto works. You're like, I don't really get this coin, but it sounds sort of cool to me. And I think that I'm in early enough, other people are going to jump in and the price is going to go up. Um, and that that's where the title of the book comes from, Number Go Up. The I heard a Bitcoin person explain this with a straight face. And I, somebody asked, like, why would the price of Bitcoin go up? And he said, well, number go up technology. The price goes up and that makes people excited and more people buy. And then the price goes up more and people get even more excited. And then the price goes up more. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this sounds like some sort of pyramid scheme, not a piece of technology. But for a couple of years there, the logic of the financial world totally broke down. And, you know, number go up thinking really took over. It really was the greater fool theory, the, the classic greater fool theory, kind of like, as you say, a Ponzi scheme. 
I mean, I I definitely think so. And I th- this is a is a challenge as an investigative reporter because you really want to get to the truth. And let's say you tell me, hey Zeke, yeah, I've got uh this new coin. It's it's practically magical. It's you know helping people in Cameroon, you know, track their crops and earn higher returns for them. And plus like you can invest in it and we're going to earn 8% interest guaranteed. So for me to go investigate all of those claims, I would have to go to Cameroon. I have to speak to your employees and convince them to tell me the truth about your investments. Um, And I did that for some of these coins in the book, but like I couldn't do it for all of them. It's a lot easier for you to just sit there and make up this story than it is for anyone to check it out. And these crypto guys were just making up the craziest stories and instead of checking it out, people were just like, all right, that sounds good. That sounds like a story that other people might buy into. You know, let me get some of that new coin. How much of it was a reflection of the financial times that we were living through? There was just so much money awash in the system. Money was so cheap that it that it gave all of this a different kind of patina. Yes, I do think it was a zero interest rate phenomenon and you know early in my career i was very bored by interest rates it was a big part of my job was writing about interest rates and i've now realized that they're very important because um when interest rates are zero any if you go to a venture capitalist and you say hey i've got this idea it's not really generating any money now, but I think it could make a lot of money in the future. That that seems kind of appealing. People are desperate to find anything to invest in that'll make them any money. Now, with benchmark interest rates around 5%, when you pitch someone an investment, they might say, well, like if I lock my money up in US treasuries for a few years, I could earn a pretty good return. What are you going to do for me? And these kind of uh, these super speculative investments don't sound so appealing. Um, And that that goes all the way through from the venture capital to, um, you know, the pitch of Alex Mashinsky at Celsius, where he was amassing this $20 billion, mostly by telling people, I'll pay you, you know, a decent interest rate on your savings. Now, you don't need to go to some weird crypto bank to earn interest on your savings. You can get it at, if not your regular bank, at least um, like I'm getting 4% on my Apple savings account right now. So, you know, crypto has got to beat that if they want to get me to switch. Talk a little bit about why this trial went so quickly. I mean, normally a federal government case, a federal case could take years to, to get to court. This happened so quickly. What happened? Yeah. So when... FTX collapsed. A lot of people said Sam won't be prosecuted. He'll get away with it because he gave so much money to politicians. And exactly the opposite happened. They made an example out of him. And Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for New York, gave a press conference after the conviction right outside the court. You know, it's a big deal when the boss comes to the trial. And he was there for several days of it. And he said, this he acknowledged what you said he said this is this is a lightning speed prosecution and he said that was not a coincidence it was a choice we want to send a message to all the scammers that no matter how connected you are 
no matter how important you think you are, how big and complicated your scam was, we're going to get you. And, we, and he said, we got handcuffs for all of you. So um, I think Sam, you know, he flew too close to the sun. And his high profile in Washington actually made everyone eager to distance themselves from him. And it made the U.S. go after him even faster to avoid the appearance that he was getting some sort of special treatment. Was there ever the perception, and you've covered this I mean, literally from the beginning, was there ever the perception that he would get away with it, that he would be found not guilty? There, like, There's always been these sort of conspiracy theorists who said that, um, among them Elon Musk. Um, but uh, to me, I didn't think the outcome was ever in doubt. Even before his top lieutenants all flipped and agreed to testify against him, it just seemed so, the evidence seemed overwhelming. To be, Sam, he argued that he just hadn't been paying attention. He'd lost track of what was happening at FTX. And like back last November, you know, I flew down there. I spent the day with him talking about this just before the cops showed up. He told me all these excuses and they sounded totally implausible. At one point, he told me that he just like lost $8 billion. And I said to him, you seriously misplaced $8 billion? And he said, misaccounted. And like with a big smile that that was like, you know, he'd come up with the great excuse. But it just, I never bought it because he was obsessed with money. He was very smart. His whole mission in life was to make as much money as possible. So the idea that he would just pay no attention to what was happening with his billions, um, it seemed implausible. Then his friends all came out and said it wasn't true. He was paying attention. He told us to do fraud. Um, and then the prosecution even pulled out. Uh, even though they had deleted all their text messages, the prosecution pulled out Google Docs that showed that they, and they had evidence that Sam had looked at these Google Docs and these Google Docs were... Um, showed them preparing to trick uh, some lenders. So there was even like evidence like that for at least some of the fraud. Talk a little bit about his parents, because they're certainly not part of the whole broader discussion of the economy and crypto, but they did seem to play a large role in this story. So he came from an intellectual family. His parents were both professors at Stanford, and not just like your average professors. Uh, his dad was an expert on tax law who went and got a PhD in psychology um, as an adult and became like a practicing psychologist, I think. And his mom wrote books about philosophy. And what are the, so as a child, he was raised to be a utilitarian, a utilitarian. You, yeah, and his this philosophy really powered him. And he thought that what it meant to him was that every action should be judged by what would do the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which sounds like, all right, pretty mainstream, fine, I like that, um, but can quickly take you to some weird places. Like, if I reached into your pocket and I took a hundred bucks and I gave it to someone sleeping on the subway, I, that might be net positive for the world, right? And Sam, I think, took this philosophy to an extreme. And he, at different points in this 
climb to the top of the crypto world, he was faced with choices where he was he could have, let's say, you know, they lost some money on a bad trade. He was like, should I cover this up? And then I can keep making money. And eventually I'm going to give it away. So it's good for the world. Or should I admit failure, admit that I lost the money and sort of throw in the towel? And he he could justify dishonesty by saying, hey, if I admit to failure, I will, that'll be the end of the story. And I'll never get to do these great things for the world. But because he saw himself as like a hero, a utilitarian hero, he could justify doing almost anything. You know, it's like the ultimate ends justify the means. So I am intrigued by how he was affected by this uh, philosophy that he learned as a child. And now the parents also were more involved than that. His father, it came out at the trial. We'd known that the father had advised Sam on um, tax matters. He's an expert on that. But he was also a member of several group chats with company executives, the contents of which have been erased. Um, so it's, it, it, I still like to know just how much he was involved. And they received a, you know, really valuable beach house as a gift from Sam, uh, as well as a big um, cash gift. And they were there for all of the trial. Um, and, uh, you know, truly, it was pretty sad to see them watching the government build this overwhelming case against their son, one that will likely put him in jail for decades. And will the government continue with other charges against him, do you think? So he still has these other charges pending uh, about campaign finance violations and also paying a massive bribe to Chinese officials. A little aside, I mentioned the Google Docs. One of them was a balance sheet. And there was a line in the balance sheet that was like, the thing, $150 million. The thing was a big bribe to some guy in China. <laughs> um, one of my favorite things at Google Docs ever. Um, so technically, he's supposed to go on trial for all those charges, I think, in March. But I imagine the government will not pursue that because he's going to get such a big sentence from the first trial that it's not necessary. The one thing that we can be sure of is that somewhere down the road, there'll be another another one of these Sam Bankman-Frieds. There'll be another fraud that will reflect the times that we live in. For sure. And I don't know what guides it'll come in because, um, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, she discredited the, you know, black turtleneck and deep voice. Sam Bankman-Fried has ruined the curly hair and short, no pants ever strategy for future founders. Um, but yeah, someone's going to come along and disarm us with some sort of amazing story and run some sort of giant fraud. And I hope that next time I'm right there and I catch him. Zeke Fox, his book is Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Zeke, I thank you so much for spending time with us today on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.